Hi, in this AB Talks with Deepak Chopra, we start to get to know more and more his mind, his story, his human side, his philosophies, and his outlook on life. I'm sure it is something that you're going to enjoy. Okay, so it's good that you've never seen the show. So this is very fresh now. I like this more. Um, so how I start is a very basic, uh, but hopefully a question you would specifically appreciate, which is, uh, I say, hello, doctor, and how are you really doing? I'm doing always well. Hmm. At least as far as I can remember. <laughs> Why would you use the word always? Isn't it a, a difficult word to use? Yeah, so, you know, I don't fluctuate between happiness and sadness. I, my favorite word you would say is equanimity. Equanimity. Can you please explain? Unflappable hmm. or uh, at peace. Okay. And have you always been this way, doctor? No, I don't think so. Hmm. But uh, last 20 years at least, yeah. Hmm. It's, uh, um, I'm curious about your answer because if you're uh, with equanimity, is that the word? Correct? Mm -hmm. Or unflappable? No, unflappable is not quite accurate. It's mm. close. Equanimity means uh, um, beyond the fluctuations of melodrama. Mm. But when you were saying that, I was thinking, Doctor, does that mean you, as much as you won't go to, let's say, the negative, which is sadness or disappointment or frustration, or stress. Does that mean you will also avoid overjoy and ecstatic energy and big celebrations? No, there's a difference between joy, ecstasy and happiness. Hmm. So happiness is the opposite of sadness. Hmm. Joy is fundamental and you see it in a child, in a baby. And ecstasy is transcendence. So Ecstasy is even beyond joy. Ecstasy means ectasis, means ectasis, but stepping out of space-time and causality. Hmm. So the happiness is always for a reason. Joy is for no reason. And ecstasy is when you find out that you don't have an identity. Hmm. Interesting. It's interesting because my second question is connected to that. I was going to ask, uh, who is Deepak? You must be familiar with Rumi, right? Jalaluddin. No, not much. Very, very briefly. Yes, with Jalaluddin Rumi, the Sufi poet, 13th century, so more than 700 years ago. He was asked, who are you? He said, uh, define me and label me. You'll starve yourself of yourself. Hmm. Nail me down in a box with cold words. That box will be your coffin. I don't know who I am. I'm your own voice echoing off the walls of God. Hmm. So who am I? It's just a perspective of the one who asked the question. Hmm. 
Actually, none of us knows who we are. We identify ourselves with our name and our biography. You can find that on LinkedIn, but if I go on LinkedIn, I won't know who you are. Mm. Um, it's interesting because I saw a clip about you and I, uh, I'm so happy that I quickly was skimming through the research and the clip um, connected and it was with you and Oprah and you were describing the difference between self-image and self-esteem. Correct. And how you learned from Rita, I believe, your uh, wife, the definition of self-esteem or how to work on self-esteem. Uh, and you were talking about how people would go through, I don't want to put your words so you can interrupt me at any point. Um, you're, you're talking about people who do plastic surgeries because of the self-image that they have of themselves rather than work on the self-esteem. So I don't know, I, I connected with that video when you were just talking about who, who are we and who are we if it's the perspective of so somebody. self-image is basically your selfie. We confuse ourselves for our selfies. And this body-mind ego um, is your selfie. It's not who you are. Your self is beyond that. Now, self-esteem is connecting to that part of yourself where you feel beneath no one, but also superior to no one. Where you don't have fear because fear comes from your self-image, from your selfie. Does look good, doesn't look good. And you're immune to criticism, but also to flattery. Hmm. I'm enjoying this already. Um, and you reminded me of something I actually spoke to, and I would love your point on this uh, as a student listening. Um, I was talking to my mother recently, and she was saying, how do, because I think I was stopped a few times and people told me, you know, how nice the show is. So she asked me, how do you feel? I told her, I, when somebody criticizes me, I'm like, okay, your opinion, cool, it's fine. And when somebody even flatters me or gives me a compliment, I'm like, thank you for a sweet moment, I'm appreciative. And then I move like, because I, 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 I told her, it's because I know my value. I don't need somebody outside. Yes, when they do, it's an extra and I'm appreciative. And without their support, we can't do much, me or you. If people don't buy your book, we can't spread. However, we should also know our own worth. And these are bonuses getting a clap or a compliment or a nice comment. It's nice, but it should not make you. Yeah, no, that's perfect. What you just said is true self-esteem. If you feel personally offended by criticism, then you'll be offended for the rest of your life. Yeah. You'll be at the mercy of every stranger on the street. But if you're flattered by every compliment, you'll also be on the mercy of every stranger on the scene. The two go together, mm. just like happiness and sadness. You know, life is an experience of contrast. At least our so-called personal life is, you can't have an up without a down or a hot without a cold. So it's the same with emotions. You can't have happy emotions unless you contrast them with the opposite. Mm. Uh, so if you close your eyes <clears throat> and do nothing, you'll become aware very 
immediately that you're having a conversation with yourself. Now it's a great mystery who this entity is that never stops speaking to itself, mm. never shuts up. Even in sleep, dreams, this conversation is going on. In waking state, of course, it's very obvious, the conversation. We call it the internal dialogue. Mm. So if you close your eyes and you listen to your internal dialogue, it's telling you stories. And basically, it's stories of the past, memories, which also project as possible future imaginary desires. Now, in India, they call this karma, although most Indians don't actually have a deep understanding of karma. But karma simply means past experience and how you interpret it, not even past experience, how you interpreted the experience. Because you and I can have the same experience, but our interpretation might be different. Mm. So the word karma simply means action. That's all it means. So every experience generates a memory. And then you have an interpretation of the memory, a narrative, mm. story. Incidentally, only Homo sapiens does this. Okay. So if the story is sad, then you feel unpleasant sensations in the body. Mm. If the story is happy, then the sensations are pleasurable. So those who actually understand this, they call this body the conceptual body or the karmic body because there's no such thing as a body. If you say I have a body, then uh, which one? You began as a fertilized egg, then you were a zygote, then you were an embryo, then you're a baby, toddler, young uh, boy, girl, teenager, middle age, all the way to dusty death. So what we call a body is a concept. It's not a real thing. It's a verb. It's an activity. It's a process. And the process is in what we call awareness. Awareness is not the process. The awareness of the body is not the body. Hmm. Okay. Just like the awareness of the mind is not the mind. Awareness is fundamental, but we're never in touch with awareness. We are only in touch with the body and the mind. Yeah. So this is a conceptual body. Now, if you go behind this story, no story, there is another body. And that is the bliss body. That's, but bliss not in the terms of, you know, taking ecstasy or a drug. Bliss is equanimity. And behind that is ecstasy. So, you know, we only look at physical stuff and we think that's real. But anything physical, anything physical, including this chair, is actually not real. It's a perceptual activity which is very transient. It's a dream. Hmm. You know, if I asked you what happened to your childhood, you'd say it's a dream. But what about yesterday? It's a dream. What about five minutes ago? What about this morning? What about these words? By the time you hear them, they don't exist. So everything you see is actually a concept. It's not real. What is real is the awareness, which is 
in which this whole process is going on. Yeah. Once you get to that level, all this becomes unimportant. Mm. That's joy. That's equanimity. That's ecstasy. That's yeah. also laughter, by the way, mm. because laughter is comfort with ambiguity, paradox, contradiction, unreality. Does equanimity have anything correlated to living in the moment and the, in the yeah, present? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. The point of arrival is always now. You can't escape now. You can't get out of now. So mm. now is timeless. Mm. Now is a moment that never ends and is always the point of arrival. You can't go where you already are. But people try to and that's why they're unhappy. Hmm. Yeah, you know, um, doctor, I heard a beautiful saying, I honestly don't know by who, but I repeat it so much. I'm sure the audience is tired of it, but I love it. And it said, um, uh, living in regret is living in the past, living in anxiety is living in the future, and living at peace is living in the moment. That's true. And so what is stress? Stress is the anticipation of the future and regret of the past. Hmm. And in a very, you know, Western science, bio biological science defines stress as perception of threat, which is not a bad <clears throat> definition, but it's actually resistance to existence. Hmm the opposite of flow. So either you're in resistance or you're in flow. Hmm. Okay. Now all you have to do is watch a gazelle or a cheetah or a bird or an eagle. You know what flow is. Hmm. Or a whale. Humans are very interesting creatures. We've hmm. become biological robots. What do you mean? A biological robot is an algorithm. No creativity. Hmm. So The essential nature of our consciousness or awareness beyond the conditioned mind is it's creative. You know, when we talk about God or whatever the mystery is, we call it the creator, right? So creativity is fundamental reality and the human mind is divided, conditioned by culture, well, not that culture is bad, it has a lot of richness, but it does condition you to what's within the culture or religion or philosophy or science. Mm. They're limiting because they work within certain domains and particularly science now is totally algorithmic. You know, we think everything is an algorithm, including our own body, including our own mind. And we have become like that. So we are biological robots hmm. imprisoned by the conditioned mind. What uh, the great uh, poet William Blake called mind forged manacles imprisoned. But we can't see them. Hmm. Handcuffs that we cannot see. Opposite of creativity. Creativity is not an algorithm, it's disruption. These days when people talk about 
new technologies, they say disruptive or entrepreneurs who are disruptive. Mm. To some extent, a true entrepreneur or a true creative mind is disruptive. It's not an algorithm. You break. There's a mathematical theorem for this. It's called Gödel's theorem, named after a German mathematician, contemporary of uh, Einstein. Mm. He said, if you have a series of uh, if you have a series of theorems, suddenly in the middle of the theorem, you'll find a theorem that you can't explain. It just mm. crops up in the mathematician's mind. Intuitively, the mathematician knows it. It's right, but he can't prove it. Now, if he accepts it, then he can continue with the algorithm, he or she. But if they don't accept it, then they're stymied. Hmm. So, Gödel's theorem suggests that nature is creative, not an algorithm. Even ab evolution, that's an argument for evolution against Darwinian evolution. That evolution is punctuated by creativity. 99% of your DNA genetic code, almost 99%, 98-point-some percent, is the same as a primate, the same as a monkey. But monkeys don't have a Shakespeare or an Einstein or a Rumi. There's some, there's some creative leap hmm. there, which current evolutionary biologists don't accept. Hmm. They should, but they don't. They will one day, maybe. When you use the word Dr. Flow, you reminded me of... I love uh, sports documentaries a lot. Yes. And I love sports even when I was a bit younger. Um, and I saw recently a Formula One documentary, and the driver said that at some point, he didn't feel he was in his body, and he wasn't thinking. He was in a state of flow as he called it. And he was just flowing with the track, no accident. Every turn, every moment is because, one reason can be because he practiced so much, one reason can be, God knows what. But he reached a point where he doesn't need to, he's in flow. And this, it's a term that's been repeated recently a lot, a state of flow, maybe even a writer, or a director, or a speaker, or a philosopher. And, and it's when you, I don't know, it's maybe it's when you surrender to that, Flows when the observer and the observed, when the seer and the scenery, when the driver and the automobile and the driving, when the lover and the beloved mm. become one. Mm. And then there is loss of personal identity. There's a slowing of time. You know, great athletes like your the Formula One driver or a great uh, football player or any great uh, athlete, they don't think they're playing, they're being played out. The game is playing them instead of them playing the game. So time slows down. Mm. There is no personal identity. There's no ego identity. It's a religious experience, actually. When you and the mystery, whatever we call it, become one, mm. that's uh, transcendence. So flow is transcendence. No time, no sound. No even perceptual experience is, there is no observer. There is no observed. There's only the observing. There's no singer. There's no song. There is only the singing. 
there is no lover, there is no beloved, there is only the love. Okay, it's a religious experience. If you look at, uh, I'm not talking about religious uh, doctrine or religious theology, but the religious experience is actually that. Hmm. Any religion, the original experience, you know, Angel Gabriel appears to Muhammad and he says, recite, and the Quran comes out. He doesn't know how to read or write, so where does he get it from? <laughs> And it's not only it not only revealed truth as they say, but mm. it's melodic, it's poetic, it's onomatopoeia, where the sound echoes the sense. That's flow. Okay, so religious experience is that number one. Number two, out of that comes platonic truth, goodness, beauty, harmony, mm. love, compassion, joy, equanimity. And the third component is loss of the fear of death. That's why this Formula One guy, whoever he was, there's no, there's no thought. Mm. It's transcendence. Death doesn't exist. And what you said is right, doctor. A lot of athletes say that when, when they are in this state, everything slows down. It's literally what yeah. you said. And they can't hear the noise. The crowd is going crazy. They can't hear the noise. Mm. There's I guess that's no being very silence. in the moment. It goes beyond all. It's transcendence of all perception. There's only the perceiving, no perception. Hmm. So that's actually what people yearn for. That's also called love. Love is not uh, a sentiment. It's the ultimate truth. The, the, you know, the observer and the observed are the same entity. Hmm. Every observation actually creates a new observer. So when I came into your studio, that was a different me. Hmm. And this is a different you. Hmm. But we hang on to a fixed identity. That's the problem. <laughs> the first impression. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, again, Rumi says, can you step out of the river of memory and conditioning and see the world as if for the first time? Hmm. Do you believe, doctor, that the more open we are, and maybe it sounds too basic, but I don't, I hope it's not, the more open, literally, our heart and our mind is the more open, and the more we experience, and the more we travel, and the more we meet people, the less judgmental we become, and the less prejudiced that we become by default? Yes. I would say the maximum diversity of experience with no labels, judgments, definitions, resistance. Resistance. Mm. There's either flow or there's resistance. That's mm. it. Mm. All conflict in the world is re resistance. All conflict is resistance. Resistance to what is. Resistance mm. to your opinion. Resistance to your idea, resistance to your doctrine, resistance to your politics. Hmm. I have a question that I would love to know your opinion on. I'm coming up with a lot of new questions in my mind while we're sitting. Why do you think that human beings, whether in a relationship, let's call it a love relationship, whether it's in a job where they ask for a job description, whether, and going back to the love relationship, they will ask, what are we? Who am I to you? You know, when somebody wants to know, like structure or label, 
why do human beings have this extreme insecurity and need to label things and to compartmentalize them according to the boxes they have in their mind? It's a difficult question, but uh, there is an answer. You asked, why do human beings, right? Because this is a very human thing. According to deep historians, uh, around 30,000 years ago, there were eight different types of humans. Homo sapiens means the wise ones. We gave ourselves that name out of humility or hubris. Either (laughs) we are the wise ones. Then we named the other humans, you know. Mm. Neanderthals, Florences, on and on. There were eight different kinds of humans. And like other animals, they had only a language for either mating, reproduction, food, or danger, Mm. which is what we need for survival. That's, if you go to the Serengeti, that's what you see. Mm. But then one species, we, reasons unclear, evolutionary leap, Uh, we created a language for stories. We're the only only species that has a narrative for everything. This chair, it's a narrative. It's not a chair, actually. It's a sensation more than anything else. It's a perceptual activity in consciousness. But a baby wouldn't know this is a chair. If it looked at it, Color, shape, form, sensation, smell. This is how animals operate. We created a language for story. Money, it's a language, it's a narrative, you know. Otherwise, before that, you you cut my hair and I'll make you an omelette or whatever. I'll fix your shoes. (laughs) It's too inconvenient. So let me make a story. Okay, here's this shell, this piece of copper, or now a piece of paper, now doesn't even have to be a piece of paper, a digital code mm. somewhere, crypto. Stories, so, you know, once we created stories, we created empires, we created nation states, latitude, longitude, Greenwich Mean Time, it's not Basra Mean Time, colonialism, <laughs> why not Botswana Mean Time? Stories, right? But everybody accepts the story and we call it reality. And the stories, actually, you know, there's some truth to the Old Testament um, fall from grace. You know, the, when the Creator tells Adam and Eve, thou shalt not take the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. What is that? It's a story, right? This is good, this is bad. That created the human conflicted mind. Uh, But it also created what we call the human universe. Everything you experience right now is a human universe, including the Milky Way galaxy. That's a story. Hmm. There's no such thing as a Milky Way galaxy. There's only a sensation in consciousness. They call it the, or my body or this chair. These are stories. And so once you have a story, then you have to defend your story. Okay, because that's what humans do right now. Ukraine, Russia, they're defending their stories and they're killing each other. 
It's madness. If you don't agree that the world is insane, then you're declaring your own insanity right now. So that's what happens in relationship and everything. The, the only relationship that survives ever is a relationship of love without a story. Hmm. Is that even possible? Yes, that's ultimate love, yes. Hmm. It can be for anyone. It doesn't have to be for a person. It can be for an idea. It can be for the mystery of our existence. I mean, if you don't... Un existence is the most inexplicable mystery. There's no explanation for why there's space-time or causality. Why this theater of space? Why do you exist? You know, you can make up reasons, right? But if existence is not a surprise to you, then your humanity is incomplete. You should be perpetually surprised that you exist. Hmm. It's to be, and once existence is inexplicable, that means everything is inexplicable. inexplicable. Yeah. When the fundamental fact of existence remains a mystery, then everything is a mystery. And if you surrender to that mystery, then you have love, true love. So, if I rewind to the question, the main challenge for people to label things, if I gather everything you just said, it's because they're trying to explain something that is inexplicable? Or they yeah, they're trying to create, we make models of reality because we don't know what reality is. So, so that's a Higgs boson. Okay, you do this fancy experiment in a Hadron Collider that costs billions of dollars. You observe a particle and by the time you observe it, it doesn't exist. And then you create a whole technology around it. I mean, this is the remarkable thing about humans is we have created technology. We've created missiles, but we've intergalactic probes, uh, the internet, and doesn't stop virtual reality. Hmm. What we don't realize is we are already living in a virtual reality. So what we are extending is the range of possibilities in a simulation that we have created. We call it the human universe. Mm. We call it this body. Okay. This is a very remarkable thing about humans. The divided mind leads to pleasure and pain, leads to concepts like birth and death, leads to fear, but also the opposite. Courage and fear go together. Mm. You don't, or hope and despair. People say, do you have hope? I think whenever you are, that's a, in a way, it's an oxymoron because hope implies despair, right? If you don't have despair, why you, do you need hope? Mm. You have to be independent of both. This where the reality is. Same mm. thing which we were talking about earlier. Mm. Okay, if I ask more about you now, about... Uh, but I told you, I don't know who I am. No, I wanted to ask about your childhood. How My was childhood? It? Yeah. yeah. How was that? Well, my father was a trained uh, cardiologist. He trained in England. Uh, he was uh, part of the British Army during the Second World War. He was ADC to Lord Mountbatten. 
At one time, he was a physician to the current queen. So he was very accomplished. He, when there was a war going on between India and China, he was up in the Himalayas measuring heart pressures. He was one of the first people to describe high altitude mountain sickness. He was an adventurer. Mm. My mother was very simple. She didn't uh, actually have a college education, but she was a storyteller. And uh, she would tell us stories, me and my brother. And every night she would sing the stories, but she always left uh, us with a cliffhanger. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the hero is defeated, the villain is willing, the girl is abandoned, the hero, now she says, it's all dismal. I want you to dream the ending by the time you wake up in the morning. Make it a happy ending and make it a love story. How interesting. So that was the contrast between my father and my mother. And your relationship with them, how was it? It was very good, you know, yeah. different, but Mm. I mean, my mother was very interesting because it was all about stories, which is, they say now, to be human is to have a story. Mm. It's also interesting if I go back to your last answer before the childhood, how you made me think how human beings love creating simulations within our simulation. Within the simulation. Yeah, many small ones. This is a simulation mm. where we are, including your body. Mm. You know, how do you know you have a body? If you close your eyes, the body disappears. Mm. All you know, have is sensations. And then you open your eyes and you think there's a world, but that's a sensation. It's color. Color, shape and form go together. So the difference between this and this is just color. That's all we experience. Mm. But then there's a story. That's a shoe, that's a pair of jeans, this is a hand. Mm. We are actually, you know, in a way, we are divine and diabolical, both. Hmm. That's creativity, it's both divine. You make nuclear weapons and cyber warfare, and now biological warfare, but then you can also create amazing music or poetry or, you know, literature or actually science that understands the mystery or tries to understand the mystery. Mm. Which is also beautiful yeah. about the human brain. We're always seeking. Yes. Seeking knowledge and answers. And it's a continuous The human seek. consciousness. The brain is an artifact. Mm. The brain is an experience in consciousness. Is it true, doctor, that we use like 10 to 11 percent of the brain? Say that again. Is it true that we use only 10 to 11 percent? No, no, that's a myth. We use 100 percent of the brain. Hmm. We just use it incorrectly. Okay. Well, that's another topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a career question. Um, I saw in my research that so many celebrities would go to you during your journey. Uh, Michael Jackson, Marlon Brando, Elizabeth Taylor. I even saw a video by La Lady Gaga. She was very touched, I think, by the influence you've had in her life. So my first part of the question is, why would all these celebrities come to you or look for you? I would call it the wisdom of insecurity. Hmm. Without insecurity, there's no creativity. So they have, but when it goes overboard, 
then it leads to suffering. Uh, because if you're very accomplished as a actor or singer, you get attached to your last uh, hit. <laughs> and if it doesn't happen again, you are tormented. So great artists are tormented souls as well. And I think that's the only reason I can give. Uh, mm. They are tormented souls. That's interesting. And you know, the doctor, the main uh, purpose or the slogan that we placed for this show is it's uh, to discover the human behind the title. So technically all these labels and accolades, even as Dr. Deepak, it's to delve into you and how you think and how your childhood was. And, and when you do that, and then you read the comments, people connect to humanity because they realize you're also a human being. You also have, you know, uh, joys and uh, achievements and sadness and struggles. It's and an evolutionary process, though. What do you mean? Well, hopefully, you're not the same person you were when you were eight years old. If mm. you are, then you should run for president in the United States anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're evolving physically, emotionally, ultimately mm. spiritually. Mm. Um, is Dr. Deepak uh, extrovert or introvert? Introvert. Introvert. Um, is Dr. Deepak um, social or antisocial? Um, I wouldn't say antisocial because mm. that, um, that's a negative con connotation, but mm. I'm not a social person. I mm. I'm not socially engaged. I, on stage or, you know, when I'm giving a talk, I'm present. Mm. And I'm present when I meet someone. But do I enjoy going to a cocktail party or a dinner celebration? Not really. Mm. Optimistic or pessimistic? Independent of both. Yeah, now we connect your equanimity. Yeah. That's my new word now. Uh -huh. um, what was the hardest decision so far for you? The hardest decision was a long time ago. You know, when I was, uh, you know, I trained in internal medicine, endocrinology, neuroscience. And then I took a leap. I mean, I realized that uh, what I was doing was very mechanistic and mm. uh, it was a risk. Uh, you know, my wife asked me, where's the money going to come for the mortgage or how are the children going to go to school? So I took a leap. I took a risk. It was hard. It was also at that time um, I was vilified by the medical establishment, mm. especially when I wrote the book Quantum Healing. There was a lot of criticism and, uh, you know, there was a loss of so-called reputation in the mainstream medical circumstances. But fortunately, it worked out. Mm. You know, the, 
I wrote a book and became a bestseller and then it happened. It steered your life. Yeah, it changed my life. So interesting. Otherwise, you would have made, maybe been just a good doctor. That's it. Somewhere. Yeah. I remember spending all night reading EKGs and smoking cigarettes and getting stressed out and all of that. Hmm. Um, now, of course, you can get an EKG on here in a minute. Hmm. Correct. <clears throat> um, why do... Why do many people think you're controversial, or some people? I think I am controversial, right? Hmm. I, 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 any time you say something that doesn't conform to people's ideology, or philosophy, or science, you know, then you become controversial. Hmm. So you're fine, fine with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you need it. I think people, humanity needs it, because if everybody just goes with the tide, you don't progress, you don't look at things from a different perspective. Yeah, that's what I say, biological robots, we're algorithms, you know, you eat, you sleep, you have a family, you raise kids, uh, you get old, you get heart disease, and you die. It's a pretty boring life. Very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think doctor, and I don't know the stats, so I'm not going to act like I do, but feeling-wise or perception-wise of what I'm seeing online and the articles and the internet helps to deliver information, why do you think, if true, that currently the younger people or the younger generations seem, seem to have more stress and more anxiety and more issues with self-image and more plastic surgery and more, I don't know, disconnect with self and not happy, nothing is okay for them. I don't know if this is true, this whole statistic. No, it's true. It's the hypnosis of social conditioning. That's what it is. Everybody's in a rush to conform. And everybody's in a rush to uh, prove themselves. Everybody's in a rush to get the best grades, the best, you know, everything. You have to be by comparison. Everything is by comparison. Our education system is also messed up. It's information overload. And, you know, if I want information, I can go to Google now. I don't need information overload. The word education comes from two roots, edu-core, to bring out what is at the core of a human being. You know, the great Indian poet Tagore said, every child born is proof that God has not given up on humans so far. But we mess it up through education. And that this is that... I would say the Judeo-Christian idea of education that is being imposed on the whole world. You know, and its symbol is the necktie, which I call a phallic symbol that strangles you <laughs> of that old colonial dominance. And mm. we're being run by it and we don't realize it, you know. Uh, what did it mean to be in the desert and to look at the stars? Who talks about it, you know? What does it mean to be rich in experience without holding on to it every moment? No such thing anymore. Mm. So it's true. It's, we are on a, I think we are 
honestly, if I have to be totally honest with you, we are sleepwalking to extinction with climate change, mechanized ways of killing, nuclear weapons, biological warfare, cyber warfare, extinction of species, destruction of the ecosystem, poison in the food chain. It's a prescription for extinction. They say if insects disappeared from our planet, life would cease on this planet in five years. If humans disappeared from this planet, life would flourish in five years. Be back to the Garden of Eden. So from nature's point of view, we are the cancer. Mm. We are multiplying, we are gouging, metastasizing and destroying our host. You know, our, we call it the environment, but it's not the environment. This air is your breath. You know, the rivers and waters are your circulation. The trees are your lungs. The stars give you the atoms in your body. 50% of the atoms in your body are not even from the Milky Way galaxy. They're from other galaxies sucked by gravitational wind. Two trillion galaxies, 760 stars, uncountable trillions of planets. Based on current calculations of what they call the Goldilocks zone, there could be 60 billion habitable planets in just the Milky Way galaxy. So planet Earth is not even a speck of dust in all the beaches. The other day I went to a beach and actually tried to grasp one speck of sand. It's ungraspable, goes with the wind. On this planet is a species calling itself the wise ones that is sleepwalking to extinction. Mm. It's the ultimate hubris. Hmm. So either we have to wake up or if we're doomed. Yeah, a lot of people say how we're the cancer. Hmm? How, a lot of people say how we're the cancer on Earth. We are. Earth is fine. The Earth is we're fine. the ones destroying it. Correct. Hmm. And the Earth will be fine, ultimately. Yeah. Might need us to go the way dinosaurs went. The last time there was an extinction, dinosaurs, 65 million years ago, when a meteorite fell on this planet. But the next extinction would be humans creating it. Hmm. You just need one crazy guy right now, anywhere in the it's world. It's scary. It's very scary. One, one push of a button, I guess. Yeah. And then everybody pushes their buttons. Hmm. It's quite manic. Insane. Mm. It is not a measure of sanity to accept sanity, insanity. It's not a measure of insanity? To no, accept. it's not a measure of sanity mm. to accept the current insanity, which we take for normal. It is a psychopathological state, a collective insanity, mm. which we call normal. Mm. On a Personal note, uh, another thing that I read that I think can benefit. So a lot of the, the goal is to take personal stories that other people can benefit from also. Um, I saw in a, in a random interview, you talked about, and the, the host also, she was like, you? And it was, uh, you said you were addicted to cigarettes and... Um, 
What was it? Alcohol. Alcohol and cigarettes. But periodically. Cigarettes I was addicted to, alcohol yeah. on weekends. Okay. That, that was another incarnation. How did you deal with the, those addictions? Well, it's a very interesting story. You know, I, I was only, I, this is in my 20s, you know, I'm now 75. Okay. So, um, one day I had put a patient on a respirator, put a pacemaker, put him in the ICU. I walked outside the hospital, lit up a cigarette. I was disgusted <laughs> with myself, shame, and I threw it, never went back. How interesting. And do you believe, doctor, that people resort... By the way, that was also very trendy. When I was mm. training as a doctor, intern, residence, everybody used to smoke in grand rounds in the hospital. Doctors wore white coat stethoscope and we advertised in medical journals for Lucky Strike and Camel cigarettes, mm. unfiltered, mm. as, you know, giving you more energy. The image. <laughs> yeah, so... Mm. We were part of that crowd. Hmm. Do you believe, uh, doctor, that people or humans resort to whether alcohol or cigarettes or drugs as escapism? Is it a fair statement? I, you know, I've come to the conclusion that addicts are actually very spiritual people. Hmm. They're searching for ecstasy. They're searching for joy. And this is their route. When I, you know, I have a lot of interest in addiction, treatment of addiction. I have focused on it. They're very spiritual people. They just are looking for joy. But that's, addiction is when the memory of pleasure becomes painful. It's no longer pleasure anymore. It's now painful. Mm -hmm. But the memory overrides. We are, we, are, we are victims of memory. That's what karma is, by the way. Mm. And is it fair to say, according to what you said, that addicts are spiritual person, but they're just using the wrong channels to yeah. reach spirituality? Yeah. I had a very famous musician, rock star addict, who was, had been an addict from the age of 15 to the age of 45. And then suddenly he discovered himself. He said, I moved from spirits to spirit. How interesting. Hmm. Um, doctor, you've been uh, through a proper journey. Yeah. God bless the, the experiences that you've had. I would say it's a blessed human being, I hope. Um, through that journey of learning, and learning about yourself and how to reach equanimity. Did Dr. Deepak also go through depression? In my training as a physician, yes. Hmm. You know, but it was, yeah, ultimately, although, by the way, there's something called the dark night of the soul that everybody goes through. I mean, there are various kinds of depression. So my first encounter with depression was actually in a way both existential and then later circumstantial. So I was 
about six or seven years old when my father was in England I was training as a cardiologist mm-hmm. and one day we got a telegram my mother was also with him and that he had passed all his exams he was now a member of the Royal College etc and uh, my grandfather and I was living with my grandfather grandmother two bachelor uncles one was a film producer in Bollywood and uh, we got a telegram that he'd passed his exam so my grandfather he you know went to the roof of the building fired a gun he was a world war one veteran and that was his way of celebrating and then he took me and my brother to a carnival we saw a movie alibaba and the 40 thieves i still remember went to a restaurant then in the middle of the night he died mm-hmm. and they took him to cremation the next day they brought some ashes in a jar one of my uncles made the remark he says what's a human being yesterday he was celebrating and today is a bunch of ashes i had my first fear existential crisis my brother who later became dean of harvard medical school dean of education he was 4 years old his skin started to peel and uh, every doctor that we went to was unable to diagnose till some healer said he's feeling vulnerable he's feeling naked so he's shedding his skin metaphorically speaking uh, when his parents come back he'll be fine and so it happened so i think in hindsight that was my first depression existential crisis in medical school and early training a lot you know you see you get most people get immune to this uh, but you see death all the time mm. you see suffering all the time especially if you're working in an emergency room every hour or less you become very immune to it you crack jokes about it and so i had all those and that's why i think in hindsight we all smoked and you know trying to deny the suffering that we saw around us mm. so the answer is yes and then there's something that happens actually even on your spiritual journey when you find out the you don't have an identity that's very scary mm. okay who is deepak chopra which body which mind which personality looking back i can't recognize the child the baby that sat on its mother's lap and she was singing songs where is that entity now okay so you go through that crisis too it's well known in in religious traditions dark night of the soul saint john of the cross old age infirmity death these are things that everybody has to go through at some point mm. but then you know if you cross over there's equanimity because actually it's wonderful not to have an identity you don't have to defend yourself you don't have to fight you see the humor in everything the contradiction the paradox the ambiguity of your existence and the creativity of it all because you know what who's it i think i'm maybe not this quoting exactly but freud said the definition of neurosis is the inability to tolerate ambiguity mm. 
hmm. when our essential state is just that. We thrive, yearn for certainty, when actually everything is uncertain. Hmm. And without uncertainty, there would be no creativity. If you were certain, again, we go back, you're an algorithm there, which is the fashion of the day. It is so boring. Yeah, very boring. <laughs> um, you've been married to Rita over 50 years. Yeah. How lovely. Um, so I would love to ask you then the question, what is uh, your definition of love? What is love to you, doctor? Freedom. Freedom to be just as you are. The positive and the negative. And understanding that that's love. Total acceptance. Now you can add things to it. Attention, deep listening, appreciation, gratitude, affection, caring. But beyond that is only one thing, acceptance. Hmm. That's lovely. And you, you managed to reach that with Rita on yeah, both she, ends? Yeah, she both, yeah, she's like that too. Hmm. I mean, if you want to really know what a person is like, ask their wife or their husband <laughs> or their children. Yeah. Then, uh, doctor, how come so many love attempts or relationships or marriages break? So because easy. they're not love, they're self-importance. The, the, the whole conflict is self-importance mm. on both sides. Everybody asks, do you love me? Instead of, they say, I love you, but they also ask, do you love me? Mm. Right? Or at least expect it. Expect it, yeah. And they don't say, I love you too. They're like, huh. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you say, I miss you too? You're like, yeah, yeah. because at that, this moment, I don't? Yeah. You know, and they'd get offended. Yeah. So it's a transaction. It's a transaction. Everything is a transaction in our society. Hmm. I saw, I think, a video of Mike Tyson. Man, TikTok sends me so many cool videos. We underrate TikTok. It knows what I like. So it's, I think I saw a video by Mike Tyson, and he was talking about how we seek the love that we receive from our mothers as men. Uh, and it's a very delusional thing because the mother loves you with, let's say, the least or the most unconditional love you'll ever experience probably is a parent or a mother. To 100%. And he's like, we seek that in our lovers, yet we will never get it. So it's always disappointing. Yeah. You know, and I And found then you go to analysis and then you spend the rest of your life saying, my mother never loved me, although she did. <laughs> yes. How interesting. Hmm. So... What would you give advice to people who want to? Like they have the good intention of having a healthy relationship or healthy love. I would say, you know, we have a program in our foundation for teen suicide prevention. Okay. Because it's now in the West anyway. It's the second most common cause of death in teens. Wow. Every 40 seconds, somebody in the world is dying of suicide. So we created a program called Never Alone. Hmm. Check it out, neveralone.love. And actually, we had an emotional AI um, hmm. uh, as the counselor. Okay. And so it's not a human being, it's a bot. Yeah. And we found that teens are more willing to talk to a bot because they don't feel judged. 
There are millions of conversations happening with this AI simultaneously because it's a machine. And what we are creating is an ecosystem on online and offline around called Never Alone around four A's, acceptance, attention, appreciation, and affection. Mm. And say, you know, you give this to a person and they give to other people in their life, let's create a pandemic of happiness in the world. The only cure for all this suffering in the world is joy. If joy should be the only measure of success and well-being. Otherwise, you've wasted your life. Mm. All the money, all the wealth, all the prestige. If you don't have joy, what, what good is it? Yet a lot of people are stuck in relationships that are at least 70% joyless and they totally stay. Joyless, totally joyless. Or if not more. And yeah. they stay. And yeah. that's the, also, I guess, the fear of the unknown and the fear also of... Also the fear of society, the fear of judgment, mm. the fear of the culture, you know, it's all yeah. that. There's a lot of that. Have you, doctor, um, ever took a cocology test? A what test? Cocology. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Give me. I'm gonna. It's a beautiful test. I was so. I'm like maybe he knows it, but anyways. Don't even know. It's a nice one. I. I. If there's one thing I. No, I'll. I'll read this for you. This okay. is my analysis. Um, if there's one thing, what? You were going to say something. I don't enjoy his tests. <laughs> well, this is a fun one. This is ve- this is very creative. Okay. So I, it's, you're a creative soul, so I think you'll like it. So this one, doctor, is done by... Where does the word come from? Cocology. It's, I think, Japanese, because the guy is a Japanese psychologist, uh, Tadahiko Nagao, mm. and he did this thing. Uh, it's a beautiful ex- question that I ask some of my guests, which I, the ones I'm really curious to see or I feel applicable to. So it needs your imagination. So whether you like to imagine with your eyes closed or open, it's up to you. Um, we start? All right. So I'd like you, doctor, to imagine a very quiet desert. Still. And suddenly, doctor, you see a cube appear. And I want in your imagination as vividly as possible to tell me, how does this cube look like? Infinite shapes the cube. Can, a cube can assume infinite shapes mm. in my imagination i can make it a circle i can make it multi-dimensional less i can make it disappear formless mm. and so when i look at anything i first even right now you i turn you into without form mm. Without form is infinite, because anything that has a boundary is finite, right? It's actually unimaginable, Mm. because there's no form. Now I can make anything out of it. So I can take a cube and make a rainbow out of it. Okay, and is this object or cube, because I've never got this answer, is it big, small? I can make it big (laughs) or small, or disappear. From, it's boundless in the atom and it's boundless in the universe. Okay. The fact that I see it as a cube is my limitation. Hmm. Okay, we go to the next part. The next part, doctor, is you see a ladder. 
and a ladder appears in this image in your mind. Uh, desert, cube, ladder. Where is the ladder in all of this? Uh, the immediate thing that comes to mind is like a double helix. Uh, okay. The code of life. Hmm. And so the ladder is actually a metaphor for the code of existence that is recycling and evolving. So it's a very tall ladder. Infinite. Lovely. New or, or old? Timeless. <laughs> I like these answers. Okay. Third thing that appears is a horse. Describe the horse. Strength. Mm. Grace. Mm. Beauty. Okay. Is Freedom. It, is it still? Is it prancing? Is it running? Galloping. Galloping. Away from the cube and the ladder or towards or around? It's dancing on the cube, hmm. which is also moving with it. Okay. Um, last thing that, no, not last thing, before the last thing that appears is flowers. You see flowers come up. Where? In a mirage. Hmm. Many, little. They bloom and they fade. Okay. Every time one blooms, another fades. And is it uh, uh, like um, healthy or wilting? Both. Okay. Last thing. A storm appears. Where is the storm? All I can say is, I'm the eye of the storm, which is equanimity. Hmm. Center. In the middle. And is it affecting any of the things that we described? The flower, the horse, the ladder, the cube? Yes, it is what I call creative chaos, without which there would be no evolution. Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll go to my help just to get it as, as accurate as I can. So um, very interesting answers, by the way, doctor, if not the most interesting so far. So the cube is a sense of self or ego. And there's no explanation here, but I can uh, dabble with you. If a cube is big, then you know that the ego is big or a very confident or bold person or somebody who wants to be you know, shown or very notable. And a smaller so that's, cube... That symbol, mm. yeah. yeah, everything that we call reality is a symbol. Mm. But reality is beyond symbols. That's why I liked your answer. You said it's formless. Yes. It's, it can be small, it can be big, it can be sh different shapes. So I guess your sense of self is limitless. It's malleable. Infinite possibilities, no? yeah. Which I thought was lovely. Um, the ladder is usually, this was interesting, it's family and friends. And you saw it as an infinite thing, and it was timeless. And, and it was symbolic of existence. Correct. And that's, I guess, your close family and your friends. There, there is that kind of view to them. You look, and it says if the ladder is, is very tall, that means it's the sense of people around you and the people and if it's segregated from the cube, not leaning onto, because leaning can be reliance or over-reliance or over-dependence. 
yeah, if somebody tells you the leader. My family yours was, is the universe. Your family is the universe. Yeah. Nice. Um, the horse is your partner. Ah. So she was galloping and she was strong and Beauty, uh, grace. graceful. Um, so I thought that was very nice. And he said it was around the cube, so which is around you. You know, I thought that was nice. Um, and the flowers are children, whether yours or the idea of children and the beauty of children. And he said they're in the mirage. And when somebody blooms, somebody goes. And you reminded me of a beautiful saying. It's somebody told me where life is us giving to our children life while we're, ours is dwindling and theirs is blooming. And when you explained the flowers, I connected to that. Move your hand just now. Hmm. Every ancestor is here right now. Hmm. Since the beginning of life, all your human ancestors, all your animal ancestors, all your bacterial ancestors, hmm. going back to the beginning of life without a single break in chain. You want their activity, their genes, and the matrix of relationship of their genes you can't move your hand, you can't speak, you can't do anything. Hmm. So all of life is in you right now. So interesting. And the final thing was the storm. And this was an interesting answer. The storm is your fears and stresses that you can feel in life, right? And you said, I'm in the middle, in the... I would really call the your eye. word you're in the eye, meaning I felt it was equanimity. It's at peace. Even though it's everything around you, you're probably sitting there and you don't, you're not troubled by it. In the midst but you're, of you're chaos. But you're celebrating the chaos. Deterministic, yeah. creative chaos. Nice answers, doctor. Um, what, makes, uh, what makes you, doctor, afraid? What are you afraid of? If any. Right now, no. I look forward to the next uh, journey, which is called death. Hmm. You look forward to death? Yes. Death is resurrection. Tell me what you mean. I look at death as creativity. New context, new meaning, new story, new relationships, or maybe the same relationships, but new wine in new bottles, new casks. Mm. Without death, we would all be doomed to eternal senility. <laughs> so death is a way of recreating ourselves, just like children is a way of recreating yourself. Mm. They're in you, just like all my ancestors are in me. Mm. And doctor, what makes you feel of value or valuable today? Like what? Because human beings like to feel of use and that they bring value. What makes Dr. Deepak feel valuable in life? If I can help people unleash their greatness, which is infinite, I feel of value. Hmm. Okay. That everyone has the potential for greatness. Is, is that um, a cliche statement that you think, is it really true that everybody can be great or some people can be great and some Ev just... Anybody can be great. Hmm. Anybody can. But of course, you know, we are imprisoned by conditioning, mm. cultural conditioning, 
economic conditioning. It goes back historically to 30, 40,000. You know, human beings as humans, the human species and the human family has been around only for 100,000 years. Mm. Written language is less than 5,000 years. Oral language, maybe 15, 30,000 years. And look what's happened, okay, in this little short time. So we are not even infants. Forget about puberty. Puberty is to come, confusion is to come. Maybe one day we will find where we started from, you know, that poem from T.S. Eliot, we shall not cease from exploration. Mm. And the end of our exploring is to arrive where we started from and know the place for the first time. Mm. What is uh, the happiest moment in your life so far? Having children. Mm. When they first showed up, it's a big mystery. Mm. Played with your mind? Yeah. Played with your mind? Yeah. You, to see a newborn baby is uh, actually an amazing, wondrous thing. A newborn anything. Yeah. It is, I think, uh, like a miracle. It is. Yeah. Actually, existence is the only miracle. Mm. Then once existence is a miracle, then everything is a miracle. I have a side question. Um, for somebody who I will consider very knowledgeable, very um, insightful, uh, very curious, what do you think? Do you think it's a need for human beings to have a partner, to have a wife, or if you want to call it a partner, or is it a need, or is it a want? Uh, or some people, they should no, I don't need to be committed or attached to another person until death do us part. So why would Dr. Deepak If you look at nature, there are very few monogamous species mm -hmm. in nature. Yes. But there are. I mean, there are... Think penguins? Penguins, certain species of birds. Yeah. Uh, and so in humans, it's a cultural... Monogamy is a cultural creation and a useful one. Because, you know, you have children, you have to have a family, the culture has to survive. Hmm. Are we that innately? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I don't have the answer. You will like the documentary Doctor on Netflix, 16 minutes, 1-6, and it's called Explained. I don't know if you've ever come across it. Explained is a very nice series of mini documentaries, like 15 minutes, 8 minutes, whatnot. One of them is about monogamy and polygamy. Very interesting and close to the words you were just saying. Yeah. You'll enjoy it. I will see. It. Yeah, it talks about our nature versus why it's useful. It's yeah. kind of, and somebody said it very nicely. He said, uh, I, he believes, he's like human beings. I, uh, he said, I believe that human beings are not monogamous by nature. They're polygamous by nature. However, it's a choice to be monogamous. It's like being on a bad diet or you choose, you can eat anything as a human, as a creature, you can eat anything you want. But you choose to eat healthy, you choose to live better. It's a choice. And he said, I see monogamy this way. It's yeah. a better choice yeah. to be healthy, whether it's uh, STDs, whether it's a building yeah. a family. Or, yeah, unless you're a nomad, you know, unless you're 
Maybe those primitive societies were happier. I don't know. I don't know either. It's just a question. Yeah. What is your hardest moment so far? At this, oh, in my life. Ever, yeah. Because we have your happiest. Yeah. Most difficult. Again, taking the leap to be not going with the expectations of conformity in my profession. Hmm. You know, I was trained as a very rigorous scientific paradigm. Even my father was kind of disappointed when I took the leap. But the later he realized it was the best thing Mm. I did. Um, Your father's name is Krish? Krishan. Krishan, just to say it right. If you had to summarize your father in one word, which word would you choose? Healer. Healer. And because of his uh, profession? Yeah, but he actually was a healer. Hmm. He was profession. He was, you know, he was... Uh, in his later years, he was a military doctor. But on weekends, he saw patients free of charge. Hmm. And they came from all over the country to see him because he's very famous. My mother would cook food for them. And then when they left, they would make sure that they had enough money for their train or for their bus ride. And not only that, they prayed for their healing, even though he's very rigorously scientific. So he was a healer. And Pushpa? Pushpa In one word. Storyteller. Nice. Um, Rita? Uh, Matriarch, not only Mm. of my family, but extended family. Lovely. Society in many ways. And Gotham? Uh, Storyteller. He Mm. tells extraordinary stories. I mean, although his his, uh, company, which he has with Tom Brady, uh, it's called religion of sport, but okay. it's not about sport. It's about adventure and story mm. and human potential. And Malika? She's like Rita, matriarch. Interesting. Yeah, she's taking over. Okay. Um, if uh, doctor, if this, if you know that your, your death is arriving, what would your last words be? What would you choose? He's gone, but there is a fragrance that lingers. <laughs> Which is legacy? A fragrance. And then it'll be gone. I like that As more. it should. Hmm. As it should. Um. Hmm. And I have a hypothetical question. I love, I love, Doctor, that you're this beautiful combination of science and creativity. Like your background is so scientific and you studied it. And then you're like, you know what? Let me mix this with life and mystery and, and art. So it's, it's, I want to play with your imagination. So this is a very basic hypothetical question. And it is if I take Dr. Deepak's heart and I place it in front of you, what would your heart tell Dr. Deepak? I quote, 
from my favorite poet, Jalaluddin Rumi. Hmm. Exchange your cleverness for bewilderment. Hmm. Bewilderment is the only holy experience. You know, scientific facts, what we call empirical facts, they conceal more than they reveal. Hmm. For everything that you know, the unknown looms. And every step forward, the unknown becomes even more infinite. And beyond the unknown is the unknowable. Because what we know is only through the five senses. Correct. Okay, and the five senses are a very narrow band of electromagnetic activity. You know, what does an insect with a hundred eyes see? What is the fragrance of a rose to a snake that navigates through infrared? What does the world look like to a bat that knows the world only through the echo of ultrasound? Bewilderment. So, science is great for creating the simulation that we are in, but it hides the truth. Hmm. And the the truth is incomprehensible, unimaginable. To us. I mean, as the limited being we are. To any, any sentient being. Hmm. Human or any, any, what is a sentient being? It knows its own sensations. That's it. Mm. Reality is incomprehensible. It's mysterious. It's infinite. It's without a cause. And uh, we can call it anything. God, Ainsof, Allah, Brahman. That's a nice way to actually surrender to this mystery because there's no way intellectually or scientifically or philosophically you can comprehend it. Have you enjoyed your story in this life so far? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm sure. Um, Final question. Uh, Deepak in one word. Well, the word actually means light. Mm. I would like to think it means light of awareness. Mm. Light of awareness. Mm. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This was very interesting to me. Yeah. I hope uh, you don't edit much, right? No, like hardly, yeah. hardly ever. It would be Unless good. somebody says, like, this is the beauty of the interview. It's yeah. long form. Yeah. It's doctor, it's No, every- it's one of the most interesting I've done, you know. That's a pleasure to hear. No, it's I've done many interviews. It's a pleasure for me. That's-